0: you're listening to the tri-state community church podcast a ministry of the associate Reformed presbyterian church located in the greater pittsburgh metropolitan area for more information including service times please visit us at facebook.com forward slash tri-state Reformed church i invite you to return to john's uh, gospel to john 17 John 17, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5, uh, but primarily verse 1 this morning. John chapter 17, verse 1 through 5. John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd be pleased, Lord, to teach us this morning, to uh, guide us, O Lord, if we are to profit from this reading and these passages, Father, if we're to profit in any way uh, that is real, that is eternal, uh, then, Father, we require your grace. We require you, O Lord, to teach us. And, Father, we ask that you'd be pleased to do that by way of your Holy Spirit, O Lord, Lift our minds, O Father, that we may see the beauty of these texts, that we may see the beauty of the truth that is put forth in these texts, that we would come to see and understand that which the Holy Spirit desires for us to learn and know by way of these texts. So, Father, we ask that you would do this work for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, in verse 1 here, when Jesus makes the comment, he says, or when John makes the comment, when he says that Jesus had spoken these words, uh, our first thoughts might be to the phrase, these words, what words exactly are being shared here? And of course, they're the words we've been studying now for quite some time. If you turn back to John 13 and verse 31... There, uh, Jesus has just uh, washed the disciples' feet. They're in the upper room. They're observing that final Passover before Jesus' crucifixion. And uh, Jesus has um, already, in many ways, dispatched Judas. We saw that uh, Jesus says, One of you will betray me. And he says to Judas, Whatever you're going to do, do quickly. And uh, you'll recall, it's been many, many weeks, but I'd made a lot of noise about Jesus when he had said that. He basically pushed the button on the machinery that would crucify him. And Judas has now departed. And in verse 31, we're told that when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him, and he begins to teach. And we've been looking for many weeks now at all of these verses from thirteen, thirty-one through 14, through 15, through 16, and now we come to John 17, and there Jesus um, reposes himself to pray, if you will, at this point, uh, we're told that when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifts his eyes to, uh, to heaven. He was undoubtedly in that posture that little Calvin was just in a few minutes ago. If you could have seen him, he was just like this, and, and uh, he, he had the whole thing going on back there, didn't he? It was like a, it's certainly what we would call a Kodak moment there, um, but that is the posture that Jesus is in here. He's lifting his eyes uh, to the heavens. He is praying uh, to the, the Father. And he says, Father, the hour has come. And um, this uh, this little phrase, the hour has come, is also another peculiar phrase, uh, especially to John's gospel, and the reader of John's gospel is aware of this. We've been pointing this out as we've gone along, and I think it would serve us well just to do a quick review of that phrase. If you turn all the way back to John chapter 2, that's where we encounter it for the first time. And if we make any effort to read through John's gospel, certainly we make it at least through chapter 2, right? We make it that far. And when we get to chapter 2 there, we find the wedding at Cana. Uh, Jesus, verse 2, is invited with his disciples to a wedding. Verse 3, the wine runs out. We, we don't think much of that in our culture, but in this culture, that is a devastating crisis, the wine is run out. That is, uh, to this culture, that's, that's a great dishonor on behalf and negligence, if you will, on behalf of the groom uh, that can bring dishonor to the father of the bride. You can get in legal trouble, we understand, the scholars tell us, uh, at this particular time for something like that happening. It brings ill repute to the families. And Jesus' mother comes to Jesus, Mary comes to Jesus, and says they have no wine, and in verse four, Jesus responds and says, "What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come." Now, I think when you read that, you think, say, "Well, well, what's what?" It's kind of one of those moments, you know. It's uh, okay, my hour has not yet come. What what is that all about? Well, then it kind of, you remember like the I shared John's Gospels a lot like being at the beach and watching the dolphins. You see the dolphins jump up and then they submerge and then they jump up and they submerge. There's always a school of them. There's always more than one, but you rarely see more than one or two at a time, don't you? And even though they submerge, they're still there. Uh, And there are so many themes in John's gospel. It's one of the tricky things about preaching through John's gospel is you have a number of these themes that that emerge. And this hour, this idea of the hour is one of those. If you turn to John chapter 7, we encounter this again. And there Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. This is about six months earlier than John 17, approximately six months earlier. It's in the fall. And Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. And if you look at verse 30, uh, there the authorities are seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And they were reminded of the hour again. We read that and we say, well, okay, I remember, I remember that from John chapter 2, this hour. Uh, what is going on with this hour? Well, you continue to read. Sometimes when you have questions like that, the very best thing you can do is just to keep reading. And you keep reading, and you get to uh, John chapter uh, 20. There we see uh, John chapter 8, verse 20. Not John chapter 20, I'm sorry. John 8, verse 20. get you moving around more than we need. John chapter 8, verse 20. Uh, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. It would have been physically impossible to apprehend Jesus until his hour came until he let them do it. Um, We always need to remember that. Uh, Jesus, uh, he gives his life for us. No one takes it. Um, And if you look at John chapter 12, now this is a real pivotal moment, and this is probably a little fresher in our minds. It's been many weeks since we were there, but uh, we'll probably remember uh, here, this is right after the triumphal entry. This is the week before the Passover, Jesus is now in Jerusalem. And what is interesting is some Greeks come looking for Jesus. You remember that for the, that passage? And this is often referred to as a triggering moment. Uh, the commentaries often use that word triggering. It's a triggering event. Uh, these Greeks come. They're Gentiles, and they come wishing to see Jesus. And Andrew and Philip... Uh, take them to see Jesus and look at the way Jesus responds in verse 23 he says the hour has come now what's that got to do with the Greeks well the Gentiles showing up is an indication of course, Jesus knew his hour had come, but this is an indication, and this this is a theological moment where John wants us to see that the gospel is not just going to go to the Jewish people, but it's going to go around the entire world. And we should all be very thankful for that this morning. Amen. You know, the gospel is actually going to come to Sunny to little sunny Chester, which is a good thing, isn't it? Someone say, Well, I'm not from Chester. Okay, it's going to come to East Liverpool, too. Come to Hookstown, uh, Wellsville. You, you, you follow me? And with the presence of these Gentiles there, Jesus is saying, Listen, the time is here. The time is here for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now look at John 13 and verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew what? That his hour had come, but not just that his hour had come, but that his hour had come to depart out of this world. You see that? And that helps us understand exactly what this hour is about, doesn't it? This hour is all about his departure out of this world. And how does Jesus depart out of this world? He departs out of this world by way of the door of the cross, doesn't he? The doorway of the cross. Now, when we come to John 17, Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven. He says, Father, the hour has come. And within a few hours, Jesus is going to be hanging on a cross. And what we have here in John 17 is often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Many of you will have a subheading above John 1 that says something as such, Jesus' high priestly prayer. And what we have here in the first five verses of this chapter is Jesus praying for himself. Jesus is praying for himself, but as it is often and rightly commented, Jesus prays for himself but his prayer looks a lot different than ours when we pray for ourselves, doesn't it? Could you imagine for a moment knowing full well what is going to happen to you within six, eight, ten hours, twelve hours, and praying a prayer like this? What does Jesus, what is his petition? His petition is glorify your son, that your son they glorify you it's breathtaking but it also can be quite confusing and we might ask ourselves okay how is jesus going to possibly be glorified through the humiliating death on a cross you ever wonder that I mean, I think in our minds, we think, oh, Jesus is glorified when he's raised. And he is. But John is teaching us here that Jesus is never more glorified in terms of his earthly ministry than when he's hanging on a cross. How do you make sense of that? That's what I want to do this morning. And I think that to make sense of that, we first need to understand what is this glory that Jesus is speaking about? It's so prominent in the text. If you look there, it's used twice. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you in verse 1. In verse 4, I glorified you on earth. That's a third occurrence. We have two more occurrences in verse 5. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And by the way, there's a claim to deity there, isn't there? Deidad, there's a claim to deity. There's a claim that Jesus himself is God. He possessed the glory. God says, I will share my glory with no one. Yet Jesus, in terms of his, in terms of being the second person of the Holy Trinity, he shared in that glory. It's a claim. To, he he is claiming in this priestly prayer. He is claiming to be God, isn't he? You see that very clearly in verse five. He claims to be God because he is God. But what is this glory? that uh, that jesus is talking about and by the way you know glory might be one of those words that we use all the time when we're in church i don't know that we use it that much after we leave here um i don't know that you use that word a lot in your text do you use the word glory a lot when you text people or when you talk with people probably not do we ever stop for a moment to define what this glory is uh we should do that and i want to do that right now what is this glory and J.I. Packer, who's famous for his concise definitions, he doesn't disappoint with this one in the New Dictionary of Theology, which is not new anymore. I think it's from the 80s. Uh, so it's the New Dictionary from Theology from the 80s. Uh, some of us would think that's still fairly new, but um, that's. Uh, Rick, shut up and keep going. I will. I'll keep going. His definition. Back to his definition. He says. He has a two-part definition here. Both parts are important and pertinent to our text. He says that the glory of God is, quote, excellence and praiseworthiness set forth in display. Excellence and praiseworthiness set forth in display. And then in parentheses, he puts glory shown. That is God's glory Shown. That is God's glory on display. It's His excellence and His praiseworthiness set forth in display. And the second part of His definition is honor and adoration expressed in response to this display. And in parentheses there, He puts glory given. We have both in our text here. We have glory on display, and we have glory given, don't we? Now, what exactly is this glory that's on display? Well, that's the point of going to Exodus chapter 34. And if you keep your place in John 17, I'd like to return to Exodus 34. Only this time, let's look at the context of Exodus 34. Go to Exodus 33 with me, and we don't need to turn to Exodus 32, but while you're turning there, Exodus 32 is a really dark moment for Israel uh, because Moses has been up on the mountain with God. And while Moses is up on the mountain with God, what is Israel doing under Aaron's leadership? They're taking and melting down their jewelry into gold and they're fashioning that gold into a calf and they're beginning to worship it, right? It's a dark moment. It's a miserable moment for uh, the people of Israel. And in chapter 33, the Lord says to Moses, verse 1, "'Depart, go up from here, you and the people "'whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, "'to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob,' saying to your offspring, I will give it, and I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, you know, we could pause right here and make some application in our culture today. A lot of people uh, really believe that God doesn't care how we live. And he never gets angry with us. And texts like this show very clearly otherwise, doesn't it? Uh, God is extremely angry right now. He does get angry. Uh, he's extraordinarily angry. And he's saying, listen, I'll go ahead and make good on my promise. But I'm going I'm I'm to send an angel with you because if I go with you, I'm going to consume you. That's the predicament. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. And therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now if you skip down to verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Now look at verse 18. Look what Moses asks there. Moses' request is, please show me your what? Show me your glory. And in verse 19, God says, well, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Let's stop right here for a moment and just do, just for a quick moment. Sometimes people will um, say you can't trust the Bible because it's full of contradictions. Sometimes you'll hear that. And someone might say, you know, here, you've got a contradiction, Rick. Um, Sorry, but there's a contradiction. In verse 20, um, God makes it clear you cannot see his face. But if you go back and you look at verse 11... There we're told that the Lord used to speak to Moses face-to-face. Now, what do we say in response to that? Is that a contradiction? It seems to at the beginning, doesn't it? Until it, there's three things that are important in studying our Bibles. What are they? Context, context, and context, right? And what is the context? Well, very clearly in verse 11, the phrase face-to-face is meant to show how God speaks to Moses. He speaks to Moses like friends speak to one another. You see that? The Lord used to speak to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend. That doesn't necessarily imply that what Moses sees is the the completely unmasked glory of the Lord because the rest of the scripture makes it clear that Moses doesn't see that. But what Moses does enjoy is this intimacy, and that's the point of verse 11, is there's an intimacy between Moses and the Lord, and the Lord speaks to him as, as though he would speak to a friend. We've encountered that in John 16 last week, didn't we? Where Jesus says this kind of the same thing to the disciples, I'm going to speak to you as friends. And that's the way the Lord speaks to Abraham, isn't it? So we see this over again, and I just want to point this out to you, and I especially want to point this out to our youngsters. Within a few years, you may find yourself in a university somewhere where there's a professor that's not real kind to the Bible, and he's saying, listen, it's full of contradictions. In fact, looky here. In one place, uh, Moses is said to speak face-to-face with God. In another place, it says, no one can see me and live. Man, what are you going to say? Contexto, ye contexto, ye contexto. Context, 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 right? Context, context, context. It's about intimacy. It's about intimacy. You say that, his cheeks are going to get red. He's not expecting any of you to say that. It's about context. Back to our point here. Verse 21, chapter 33, Exodus 33, verse 21 the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall, not, where you shall stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you. Why is he covering him? Because no one may see him and live. It's because of his, his august holiness is why. And the Lord is going to cover Moses up. So what Moses, Moses only sees what's safe for Moses to see. And then in verse 23, Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Verse 1, chapter 34, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain." No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now let's take a closer look at verse six and seven, but before we do, let me point out one thing that it isn't so much what Moses sees here but it's what Moses hears. That's the best news we could ask for. Why? Because we can hear the same thing Moses heard. Does that make sense? With the ear of faith, as the old preachers used to say, with the ear of faith, we can hear the same words that Moses heard. What's the point here? Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. Okay, I'm going to put you in a cleft of a rock. I'm going to cover you up. I'm going to pass by you. Moses certainly saw something, but the emphasis is not on what Moses saw. The emphasis is on what Moses heard. And we, the application is really clear, isn't it? We can hear the same thing this morning. What did Moses hear? The Lord, this is verse 6, the Lord, the Lord. That's the first two words. You notice that your, your um, Lord in your, your Bible is all capitalized. Notice the capitalization. You all know what that means. I point it out all the time. It means that the divine name Yahweh is being translated. You could translate this passage Yahweh, Yahweh. What is significant about that? That's the covenant name. That's that's the name that designates his self-existence and self-sufficiency. That's the name that shows us that he is creator and redeemer. He is the one who has created us all. No one has created him. He is self-existent. He doesn't need anyone. He is self-sufficient. He has created all of us. And he is also the redeemer. And notice it's repeated. He could have just said Yahweh, but he says Yahweh, Yahweh it's emphasis. He's emphasizing this covenant name. And he says, a God merciful. Some of your translations may use the word compassionate. Compassionate. What does that mean? That means he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Yesterday, I was visiting my Aunt Peg. Some of you know my Aunt Peg and visiting her and you know I said you know tomorrow morning we're going to be looking at this passage you know we're going to start with John 17 and we're going to you know we're going to talk about the glory of the Lord and you know her and she's so lit up I mean she just Tammy was with me and she she just she just lights up when you when you start reading the word when you start talking about the word she lights up like a Christmas tree in the midst of all of her pain in the midst of her frailty, she lights up like one of the most beautiful Christmas trees you could ever find. And she's all lit up. And I was talking to her. I says, look what the Lord says, Yahweh, Yahweh. I said exactly the same thing I just shared with you. I said, but look, he's merciful. What does that mean? She goes, I don't know. Of course she knows what it means. But we need reminded, don't we? It means that he sympathizes with us in our weakness. It's the opposite of being a tyrant. It's the opposite of being cold. In his love, he, he, he reaches down and he, he ministers to us in our weakness. He is compassionate. He's gracious. That's this next thing that he says. He's gracious. What's that mean? He doesn't give us what we deserve. He has never, up to this point, he has never once given us what we deserve. Because if he gave us what we deserve, we would be hanging on the cross, wouldn't we? And that's a truth that our culture is rejecting all over the place. But we need to embrace that truth or we're not going to understand the point of the cross. This is what we deserve. We're not just a bunch of nice guys that need a little bit of help. I don't mean, it gives me no pleasure to say that. And I'm saying that of myself. Uh, First and foremost, I deserve to be hanging on that cross. Some of you have known me for a long, long time and say, yeah, we understand that. We were going to get to that a little later. We deserve to be on that cross. But God is merciful. He is gracious. Look at the next phrase. Slow to anger. He's patient. Some of your translations may have long-suffering, long-suffering. He is long-suffering, and he is abounding in steadfast love. What is that all about? We sing a song sometimes called Chesed. And that's the Hebrew word that's in this passage. And what is hesed? Hesed is covenant love. That's the way I prefer to think of it. Steadfast love is another good translation of it. Loving kindness is another good translation of it. I like to think about it as covenant love because the covenant part of it reminds me that God keeps his promises. I shared that with Aunt Peg yesterday. that God keeps his promises, And we talked. I was there to comfort her. I was talking to her about the the promises, the promises. Think about all of the promises that God has given us, promise of eternal life, promises of seeing him, promise of a new body, a resurrected body that doesn't hurt. All of these great promises. And his Hesed love reminds us that God keeps all of his promises. We don't have to worry. He is so unlike us. We break promises routinely. We don't think nothing about it. But if God broke a single promise, he would cease to be God. He makes these promises, and he keeps these promises. And that's the word faithfulness here, some of you may have truth, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, or abounding in loving kindness and truth, Faithfulness and truth, and that is the Hebrew word. It can be be translated both ways there. That speaks to his, he makes a promise. He's going to keep it. He makes his promises in truth. He's going to keep them. Notice how it's repeated in verse 7. It's being emphasized. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. That could also be translated to the thousandth generation. You might have a footnote to that. And... Notice in uh, verse 7, forgiven iniquity, transgression, and sin. You know, it doesn't just say forgiving sin, but it says forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Why use all three words? Because each has a certain color, a certain flavor about it, if you will, a certain meaning. Each word means, in one sense each word means the same thing, but in another sense each word has a slightly different Uh, flavor to it if you look at iniquity what is iniquity that's deviating to the left or to the right that's not following the straight path that's that's falling to the left falling to the right what is transgression transgression is just willfully disobeying it's willfully rebelling uh, against god it's that willful defiant rebelling against him and what is sin sin is just a general word for moral failure but we're given all three words to show that this is comprehensive. It's comprehensive. It covers everything. It's covering it all. Some of us say, I, you know, sometimes people will ask to talk with me and we'll sit down and talk and, and they'll say, can God forgive me? And I'll say, yes, God can forgive me. And then they'll say, but you don't understand what I've done. And I say, I don't care what you've done. And they usually go, What? I don't care what you've done. What do I care what you've done? I don't mean that to be callous. I mean that, that I'm not here to judge you. We are both criminals. I'm a criminal and you're a criminal. My past looks a little different than your past, but what we have in common is we've both committed crimes against the Lord. So I really don't care what your crimes are. It doesn't matter. Jesus can and will forgive you if you come to him. Can you prove that? Why, sure. Turn to Exodus 34. Exodus. Yeah, Exodus 34, right here. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That covers it all. That covers it all. But notice, he will by no means clear the guilty. That's the part we don't like. We like it up till now. This sounds great, but we don't like the justice stuff. Listen, if, he's not, if God is not just, this whole thing falls apart. If he's not just, it all falls apart. If he's not holy, it all falls apart. God's holiness is all through this. This is, the, this is why Moses is putting a cleft of the rock. This is why Moses is being hidden. This is why no animal can even touch the entire mountain that they're on. Because of the holiness of God, because of his pureness, his purity, if you will, and his justice. God can't be loving if he's not just. We know that, don't we? Because corruption always harms somebody, doesn't it? It's one of the complaints we often have is corruption. It harms people. God cannot be corrupt even in the slightest. He's not. He's holy. He's just. Now, With all of this in mind, we see the glory, what God is showing. And and actually, it isn't so much that Moses sees. Lord, show me your glory. I think he's expecting to see this magnificent sight. And undoubtedly, he sees something, but it's veiled. But we're not given a description of what he sees. We're given a sermon. We're given what he hears. And it's brilliant on God's part because we can hear it too and we are hearing it and what are we in hearing it what are we getting we're getting the glory of God this is what the glory of God is now let's go back to John 17 how can Jesus be glorified on a cross may the lord paint this indelibly on our hearts this morning that we will never forget never forget this verse Jesus says the hour has come father Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. How is Jesus going to be glorified on the cross? Jesus is God. That's verse 5, isn't it? Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Who is Jesus? He is Yahweh. Yahweh. And I think I hear Moses. I think I hear God saying to Moses, The Lord, the Lord. Or Yahweh, Yahweh. Who is this that's on the cross? It is Yahweh who is on the cross. And what is he doing on the cross? He is dying in the place of sinners. I think I hear the word compassion and mercy. (laughs) Wow. How 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 else could God possibly show his compassionate nature or merciful disposition to us? Than Jesus his son hanging on a cross. Why is he there? Because he has said to us, listen, you step over here. I'll have nothing to do with you going to that cross and dying in your sins because you'll die there eternally. I'm going to go in your place. I'm going to show you mercy and I'm going to show you grace. I am not going to give you what you deserve. I am going to take what I don't deserve. Jesus, in terms of his human nature, is the only human being who doesn't deserve to be on the cross, and he is the one who is on the cross. And there we see his, we see his mercy. We see his graciousness, his slow to anger. Jesus, Jesus is treated so miserably, isn't he? insults are hurled at him. They spit on him. They threw a crown of thorns on his head. They had him carry his cross. They taunted him while he was on the cross, but he reviled them not. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know not what they do. Think about the patience, the massive patience that the Lord has. Do you see that? Faithfulness. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, God promised a son who would defeat Satan. And then he made that promise again to Abraham when he made that covenant with Abraham. And he said, listen, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And here we are in Chester this morning. Why? Because God is faithful to that promise. There's going to be some families in Hookstown. There's going to be some families in Chester. There's going to be some families in Wellsville. Yeah, yeah, Wellsville. I'm just teasing. I have nothing against Wellsville. Faithfulness. How about forgiveness? Forgiveness means lifting or carrying. God takes our sin away. He lifts it. He carries it. He lifts it to the cross, and he carries it away, doesn't he? For everyone who puts their faith and trust and justice, his holiness and justice. What do we see at the cross? We see God punishing Jesus. And the punishment that he endures is his justice. In fact, it's often said that his justice and his mercy meet right at the cross, don't they? And what does this mean for us? And I'll close with this. What does this mean for us? It means the moment that you put your faith and your trust in, in, in Jesus, all of this is ours. And what is Jesus saying? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. (laughs) Jesus' willingness and his submission to even die on a cross rather than disobey the Lord is the glory primarily being spoken of. But as Jesus does this, the entire cosmos sees everything that we've looked at in Exodus 34, doesn't it? So now when we ask the question, how is Jesus glorified on the cross? Let your mind go to Moses on that mountain. Let your mind go to the words that Moses heard on that mountain. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, uh, iniquity and transgression and sin for a thousand generations, who will by no means clear the guilty. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have not only shown your glory to Moses, but this morning, Father, you've been pleased to show your glory to yet another generation. That you have shown your glory to us, O Lord, and with the eyes of faith, Lord, we can see your glory. We thank you, O Father, for the brilliance of your word. That, Lord, we didn't get a description. We didn't get a physical description, Lord. If we had gotten a physical description of you, we'd be making all kinds of idols out of it. But instead, Lord, you gave us a word. You preached a sermon to Moses. And that sermon can be preached over and over again so that every generation can enjoy what Moses experienced. We can enjoy. We can see your glory. And, oh, Lord, as we turn to the New Testament and as we turn to this great prayer of Jesus This high priestly prayer, we can see that there your glory is on the cross. We can see what otherwise would be confusing to us. How could Jesus possibly be glorified on a cross? And there we see your glory. We see your excellence and your praiseworthiness on display. Your glory shown. And, O Lord, may we respond by praising you, serving you, turning from our sin, and embracing you.